I tend to be a bit sceptical when high-profile people are announced as government czars who will, the impression is given, sort out a complex problem by sheer force of personality. But one such appointment recently made me cheer, partly because the person chosen, Sir Kevin Collins, is someone I so strongly admire, but also because he's leading on an issue that matters to parents everywhere, including me. On February the 3rd, Sir Kevin became the school's catch-up czar, and I'm delighted that he chose Bridges to the Future for one of his first extended interviews. This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. So I'm delighted to be joined by someone I've known for a few years, but who's now got a really challenging new role, Sir Kevin Collins. Kevin, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Matthew. It's good to be here. So I'm fascinated to talk about the challenge that you've got. So as I understand it, you're basically in charge of trying to address how we get children not just kind of back into the system, they're back in the system now, but how we help them to catch up for the disruption their education has suffered over the last year. Is that right? I wouldn't use the word in charge. My responsibility is to give the Prime Minister and the Secretary of State advice and, if you like, guidance on how we best support young people as they recover from what has been, you know, the biggest disruption in education we've ever seen. And tell us a bit, Kevin, I know your background, but tell us a little bit about what you've done in the past, because I'm sure people want to go, well, that's such a big challenge. What, what, what is it in your past that equips you to take that on? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> I think it's my experience as a practitioner working in schools in East London and in, in Yorkshire as a leader of schools and education systems. I was the director of the National Strategy, so I've seen big national programmes run through our system and also Director of Children's Services and Tower Hamlets in East London, but most recently as the Chief Exec of the Education Endowment Foundation, so with a good view, if you like, good oversight of the evidence around what really matters in education, what works and what doesn't, and when you've got precious time, you need to make sure you do the things that work. So that's where we were meeting each other at conferences and other events when you were doing that work with the Education Foundation. Now, how big a challenge is it for you in this, Kevin? So here you are, someone who really wants to base things on the evidence. It normally takes many years to establish evidence, lots and lots of different studies. You were famous at the EF because of the role you played in, in the kind of toolkit, which told us about education interventions, about how effective they were, how much they cost. But one of the critical things was how strong is the evidence? But now you're trying to address something where the evidence base must be quite weak. I mean, what we actually know about the impact this has had on children and what we know about how on earth you enable children who've collectively been through something like this, something that hasn't happened for 100 years or perhaps ever, really, with our current school system. What do you do with so little evidence to go on? Well, I don't think we're going to build an evidence base that has a direct relationship to this event and therefore you do this. I don't think we're going to get that causal relationship. I think what you do, what I'm proposing, is that we do have a good body of evidence around the things that make the biggest difference. So if you take one example, we know that one-to-one tutoring or small group tutoring is highly, highly effective at accelerating the progress of children. So you bring, in my view, you bring something like that to the fore and apply it if what you're trying to do is recover for some of the the lost learning. Because we do know a few things, Matthew. I think as ever in England, and this is one of our great problems in the education system, 
the impact has been incredibly varied for different children. Some have had fantastic support. They've had brilliant digital support. They've had parents who have the time and the wherewithal to be with their children they're learning. Others have had very little. So variation is going to be a big fallout. And the gap between the children from low-income families and their peers is going to grow. I'm pretty sure of that. So you need to make sure you're bringing the evidence to the table that deals with the gap, accelerates progress, and supports teaching. Teachers need to teach like they've never taught before. So how do we help teachers do the right things? They're some of the ways that I'm thinking of bringing the evidence to the table. It's very challenging, isn't it? Because as you say, the experience of children has been so different. You know, I've got a eight-year-old daughter i would say the provision that she's had from her school has got better as time has gone on but it's been i don't know two or three sessions a day she's got friends in independent schools who've been having a whole timetable six or seven hours a day you know my daughter has the support of a house with good wi-fi reasonable space very engaged parents who've got a bit of time to to kind of support her other children have been through very different circumstances. And of course, some children have been at schools nearly throughout all of this because they've been the children of key workers. How do you go about targeting policy and resources when you've got such a variety of experience? And it can't simply be reduced to kind of socioeconomic factors because there's variations even between people in the same kind of class background. So I don't think you do target everything. I think we're going to have a combination, in my view, of of universal kind of offers, additional offers, and then some targeted work. So, you know, as an example, I think one of the things we've realized, and we, we knew this already, but it's come into sharp relief, like so many things have come into sharp relief that we already kind of knew, is that schools don't only drive the academic progress of children, they're very important parts of their lives in relation to their social and emotional and physical development. Now, that doesn't cut for someone who's just got good Wi-Fi. That is a general issue for all children. So in terms of having what I'm calling a fair and focused and fearless recovery, do we need to challenge the idea that children are only in school for, you know, six and a half hours a day? Do we need to think about broadening the experience so that children are doing more sport, are involved in more art and creative work by expanding the time they spend in education. For example, these are some of the things that I think I'm considering. And at the moment, everything is is the phrase on the table. And is the kind of idea that we should expand the amount of time that children spend a way of dodging any kind of notion there's some trade-off between a kind of agenda that's around, as you say, kind of well-being and socialising and just enjoying themselves and the need to address the slippage in kind of core standards is the only way that you can reconcile those people who say the absolute priority is got to be catching up on standards and those who say no the absolute priority has got to be children just kind of having a bit of time to enjoy themselves and enjoy each other etc you can't resolve that within the hours you've got available is, is that what drives it I've always thought that those two positions, it's a kind of false dichotomy. It doesn't make sense to me, not only, you know, as your eyes see it, but also the evidence reveals that there is a strong reciprocal and virtuous relationship between achieving well academically and building, say, for example, self-efficacy and self-belief and confidence. Equally, having a broad set of experiences that might involve, I don't know, sport or creative or whatever it might be, we know knocks back into domains of learning, self-regulation, self-control, which really matter. So these things live together. So I've always rejected that sort of false dichotomy. But to your point, in the time that we have in schools, 
regardless of extending anything, we already were seeing huge variation in outcomes for children. And that's to do, of course, with the quality of what you do in the time. So one of the drives for me, matching time, is matching quality. The two have to go together. That's strong in the evidence as well. So how do we support our teachers? Because you're going to have to teach like you've never taught before, in my view. So there's something about improving the quality of teaching. So it sounds like you're trying to kind of achieve something which is a long-term goal, which is something you've been working on for many years, which is empowering teachers with the best research, the best evidence, in order that they can be the most powerful and creative professionals they can be. But you've got a clock on this. This is an emergency intervention to an extent. So how do you kind of reconcile a kind of mindset that says, look, we've got whatever it is, you know, two years or whatever, or three years to help kids get through this and not be scarred by it versus the fact that you are wanting to take forward an agenda you've been working on for a decade, which is around the best quality teaching that is based on the best possible evidence. Yeah, it's a really important point. There's a group of young people that, you know, you might use the phrase less time to learn. So they are heading into their 15, 16, 17 years old, and they're heading towards the labour market. They're not on the track necessarily to go to university. And for that group, I do think we need to be more urgent. The more time you have left in education, the more I think we can adapt our curriculum, adapt what we do in schools to support you to recover, if that's the right phrase, or to make up some of the loss. Whereas if you've got less time to learn, we've got something urgent to sort out. And I think we then need to be a bit more radical about asking ourselves, if you're heading towards the end of further education, do we need to offer you another year, for example? If you're on the track to be a great plumber and you haven't had the chance to be out on site doing the work, we need to give you the opportunity for the practical work. So I think there we need to be more radical about, for some young people, just extending, giving a repeat year or just giving them more time. Others, I think, we need to adjust as we make provision going through their school life if you're very young We need to make adjustments to make sure we cover the core learning that you've missed. But over time, we can make up some of this. So I think there are two or three cohorts here, Matthew, that we need to keep in mind. Yeah, that's fascinating. So I think people's general view might be that it's younger children who will find this more difficult to cope with psychologically because they're less able to articulate how they feel and what's going on around them. And I think also, I sense that for younger children, just the sense that the adult world is not stable is problematic for them whereas older children may have been able to cope with it better psychologically they'd already come to the conclusion that adults didn't know what they were doing most of the time (laughs) but you're saying that the impact on them the immediate impact on them in terms of their own further education and life choices might be greater so you you start with them because you haven't got them for long yeah but you also attend to the different needs which younger children might have is that is that broadly the approach Yeah, there are some very important tipping points in the school life. So if you take the journey at the very youngest, I'll do two examples. If you do reception, so children are four and they're going into school, this is often seen as a moment of going from an informal, play-based, child-directed learning towards a more formal school-based education. Now, if children have missed reception and a whole cohort have missed a lot of reception, They've missed not only the time, they've missed some really important experiences because that play, that engagement with each other, 
is really important learning. This is where you do develop the capacity to self-regulate, to delay your gratification, to build alliances and relationships and friendships. You can't just pretend that doesn't matter. You've got to adjust year one to allow for that. And I think this is where we need to support our teachers to teach to a broader range, if you like, of the curriculum in its broader sense and the broader meaning of that word as children arrive. And the second group that I might mention are children leaving primary school to secondary school. Secondary schools assume or have an expectation, as we all do, that when you leave primary school, you should be reading at a certain level and you're ready to access a secondary curriculum. Now, we already know that if you enter secondary school, your reading isn't at the expected level. Studying cohort after cohort, you're very unlikely to thrive in the secondary school. The likelihood is there might be some more children arriving because they haven't had enough time in year six to consolidate their reading. We now need to support year seven and key stage three, as we call it, to meet those literacy needs and not have that same old pattern that just because you arrived at this reading level, you're not going to thrive in your secondary school. We need to support the teaching and the provision at key stage three and in year seven for those young people. So there are some important tipping points and transition points we need to think about. But you're right, that group who have less time to learn at all these stages or learn the things that really matter, that's where we need to kind of act urgently. And have you, Kevin, been able yet to articulate what you're trying to do in terms of concrete goals? Are there things that you are measuring in order that you are able to say in two or three years, well, we have made progress in relation to this gap or in relation to this particular bit of learning? Well, as you know, Matthew, we measure lots of things in education that, you know, that move and don't almost. I think the schools would say that that's that's the one thing that we we do do. And I guess there are three things that I would want to be judged on if the recovery had worked well. I think the first is that the attainment of children, their raw academic attainment, had returned and gone further than before, that we'd restored attainment. So I think this is, we know, a strong indicator for all sorts of things. That the gap in the attainment and progress for children who are disadvantaged had got back to where it was, if not better, because I'm very worried about the risk of the gap widening as a consequence of the pandemic. And I think these are on a par, by the way, all the, these three measures. And the third is that somehow we find a way, and we haven't got this yet, of appreciating that children's well-being, their emotional, physical well-being, has been restored. That we've done something to create the range of experiences that have tackled what many parents and many have reported to us as one of the other consequences of the pandemic, that children have just not had the chance to grow and thrive in a way they otherwise would. That's another measure that I would like to be used to judge the impact of the recovery programme. So I think people listening to that final measure will actually be excited in a sense that, I mean, one of the things, Kevin, we've been doing a lot of work on at the RSA over the last year is the way in which innovation and change in crisis can sometimes provide what we call a bridge to the future, an opportunity to change things that were maybe stuck. And I've long thought that one of the most pressing things that's missing from the way in which we assess schools is simply whether children are enjoying themselves, whether they love their learning, how it feels for them. It feels like children are the one group that have been locked out of a general process of the last kind of 20 or 30 years, which is, well, the customer or the client or the user knows best. And we might not always adhere to that principle in terms of what we do, but the principle is accepted. Is there an opportunity here, do you think, to just take children's own experience of learning more seriously in the way in which we assess whether our education systems are working? 
Yeah, I've always thought that one of the things that you really should do as a teacher, a head teacher running systems is talk to the children. Only last week I was doing a year six lesson with, I was zoomed into a year six lesson with a class in Camden. And what's exciting about those conversations is not, um, as people might worry about, a desire to lower the bar. Actually, the young people are more ambitious than any of us. And they have a a sense of what they want, and they are pushing us quite rightly to provide more for them. So yes, I absolutely agree with you. I think going back to that point, though, of in the round, what we've learned is that the school experience is what we've missed. And this isn't the same as just this thing called the curriculum or the attainment. There's something about the school experience which really matters to children. And that's why, for me, my life's work has been creating great schools. And I think we might have lost the way slightly on the value of that whole and broad experience, which I think is what really, really matters. And you can only, well, not perhaps only, but but surely if you want to measure this whole school experience, you have to talk to children. You have to listen to them talking in their own voices about how they feel about their school experience. Are there other elements do you think of the crisis and how we're responding to the offer opportunities for learning within the system maybe it's the use of digital or whatever it might be as a researcher or as somebody who's organized research do you see other opportunities for insight i think there are a whole host but two that come to mind straight away for me or what i'm calling you know sort of developments where you want to capture if you like the opportunity or the the innovation we saw through the pandemic the first is digital and the way that so many teachers turned on a sixpence to reorganize and recreate not only what they were teaching, but how they were teaching. I was joining lessons where I was with the teacher on Zoom, joining in lessons. I saw that happening in this country. I saw it globally happening. I thought it was just amazing. And I don't think that's going back in the box. I think we've broken this divide between the home and school. I mean, homework doesn't work anymore as a concept. It's the work you do here and the work you do there. And I think there's a merging between these two things. The risk, of course, as I know you're working on, the risk, of course, is that it becomes a new divide. It becomes something that takes advantage children already further away from their peers. And growing inequality is one of the global risks in education. So the digital work must not allow that. So there's a great bit of research there on how do we make this available to everybody. And the second is, without the digital, just this whole piece of involving and engaging parents in children's learning. I've been struck by how many parents have been quite surprised by what their young children were doing at school and have been dragged into the heart of the curriculum, not only in a way that is, wow, isn't that exciting, but also saying, well, why are they doing that? I love this. I love this debate. I think this should be up for discussion. Why should it be in the hands of just a few people what children learn? These are the proper conversations you should have in communities. And so I think parental involvement and engagement in learning, the digital kind of uh, domain, I think these are are open now for ripe investigation and research because they are really um, transformed through the last year. Now, I love that point about parental engagement and the debate because you know, although for someone like you who's immersed in the debate, you see all the kind of shifts and moves in policy and whatever, I think for people who aren't in the school system, it feels as though our thinking about it has been dominated by really standards and social mobility for decades now, that the only stories really about education are, are we raising standards relatively narrowly defined? I mean, they have to be defined. And when I say narrow, that sounds pejorative, but defined particularly in terms of kind of knowledge and subject. And on the other hand, social mobility, which is, is the education system helping people move up the kind of social ladder. Now, I'm not saying either of those things are not important, 
But there are other things as well which have not really been part of the debate or have too often been seen as somehow distractions from the conversation about standards and social mobility, well-being being one of those. So from my perspective, Kevin, if this does enable a wider conversation about the purposes of schooling, what makes school successful, what does achieve what for me is the ultimate aim of objective, which is to instill a love of learning in young people, then that's only for the good, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree with you more about this discussion that we must have around what are schools for. And I think the pandemic has kind of reminded us that they are so much more than places where children arrive to be filled with a set of knowledge and then to be sent home. They're fundamental to help us create the citizens and human beings we want children to be and children want to be. So my point about time, as I've mentioned it, is to try and square this circle that we can't take a step back on attainment and on skills. We have to, in a knowledge-driven world, we have to be the best at that. But we also need to build a broader set of opportunities for children, whether it's volunteering, community service, competitive sport, playing a musical instrument. For too many children, these things have been taken out of their education experience as people have driven harder on the standards. And we need to build this all back in because I think otherwise it's an impoverished education and not, as you said earlier, not giving us the happy, love-learning, engaged young people we need. I can imagine people cheering as you said that, Kevin. Look, you've not got much time and I feel guilty taking you away from the vital work you've got. So I've just got two last questions. The first is about teachers. So teachers have found the crisis difficult. You know, they found it difficult in terms of how they do the work. And as you said, I've seen even in my own personal experience, some teachers who've not been easy doing the digital stuff and others who've been unbelievably creative. You know, they've designed their own websites on fantastic things, but also they've been affected themselves. They've lost members of their family. Their own health has suffered or whatever. Teachers are now being asked to do different things. Certainly in my daughter's school, it feels as though the emphasis from now to the end of year is very much on kind of well-being and getting children back into the kind of socialising school. But, you know, teachers are not mental health experts. You know, they weren't trained to be experts in well-being. They're trained to be teachers. Are you at all concerned that teachers are being asked to do things which maybe they don't have the skill set to do? I mean, you found it hard enough in your previous job to get teachers to be fully aware of the best evidence about teaching. Now they're being asked to become kind of mini social workers, mini psychologists. So I think the key thing here is being realistic about what we can expect. I don't think there's anything new at all in asking a teacher to consider the well-being of children. In fact, I think that's an invitation for teachers to return to part of the reason any of us became teachers, because we love and care about children. So the well-being is not a new thing. I think there's a limit when you start using the language of mental health, because I get slightly concerned that we mustn't trivialise this notion. That you absolutely need professionals, mental health services to kick in at the right point. But everything we do and all that we do is supporting children with building strong mental health, but we mustn't, as you're right, become the practitioner. So there's something about clarifying who's responsible for what. Teachers are always and have always been involved in the, in the well-being of children. It's a core part of the task. But the well-being of teachers is something we also need to consider because we tend to just load responsibilities onto teachers. What's currently topical right now is, well, let's do more work in schools on teaching young children, quite rightly, in my view, about violence and particularly the violence of men on women. But incorporating these demands and these needs in our society onto teachers 
We just have to be careful that we're just not overloading and think about how we do that in a sensible way. I think you do it by trusting teachers, by actually saying to teachers, we're not going to keep telling you what to do. We're going to trust you and we're going to train you and support you because one of the big planks of my work is to really invest in the development and training of our teachers in a way we haven't done before to build the quality alongside any discussion about time. Yeah, and I think something that you and I have talked about a lot in the past is a bigger factor here is the culture of the school and that teachers who are facing new challenges, new difficulties, don't know quite what to do. Being in a culture where staff talk to each other, where leaders of the school continuously engage, where you have that right mix of challenge and support in the school is so important to this. Because if you're an isolated teacher in a school where the dialogue isn't rich, where you're worried about being blamed by your leaders, you're not going to ask for help when you need it. That is absolutely right. You know, unfortunately, too many teachers are leaving the profession. Now, we recruit, we can recruit. We recruit 30,000 teachers a year in England. We're one of the mass professions. We employ nearly half a million people, of course, teaching our schools. But unfortunately, of those people we recruit, too many leave within three years of, of starting teaching. We need to ask ourselves why. This is the greatest job in the world, in my view. I loved every second of it. What is it about the way that we're asking people to do it at the moment? which is leaving too many of them frustrated, overworked and overloaded and not being fulfilled in the kind of intellectually curious task it should be every day. And I worry about the way we're infantilizing teaching and the way we're also saying we only care about these outcomes. And the broader outcomes that I've talked about actually may be reassuring and empowering to teachers and saying all these things matter because I think that they know that instinctively and don't like the idea that all we care about are these narrow set of things you can measure. They're important, but we care about much more than that. And any advice for us as parents, Kevin, as we support our children over the next couple of years? I'm always nervous about giving parents advice when I think about my own my own performance <laughs> in that regard. Children, we let's trust them as well. They are resilient. We'll be amazed by the way children... Uh, respond to the experience. I don't think that the story of how the pandemic has played out in children's lives has been written. I don't think that chapter's written. We're going to learn a lot more about them. But I do think this is a time to to trust them, to support them. And let's not put too much pressure on. Let's have some confidence about the way we can all respond to this. And the other key thing is the way that we've been working with our children, of course, it, we don't want it to be like that every day forever. But stay involved, stay engaged in their education. Because one thing we know from the evidence, crystal clear, is that a child whose parents involved and engaged in their education, that doesn't mean doing the homework, just interested and engaged and involved, achieves far more than children whose parents don't. Finally, Kevin, are you enjoying it? I mean, I don't know what your plans were before the phone call came from the Secretary of State or the Prime Minister. Tell us who it was. But when you got the call to take this task on, did you hesitate for a second? I was very honoured. It was the Prime Minister. No, I didn't hesitate. I was semi-retired up in Derbyshire, where I live. I've offered to do this, and I promise to do this for the next nine months. Interestingly, and I'm not just saying this, I'm not doing it in a way where I'm working for or being paid by the government. I'm just doing it as a voluntary act. And of course, how could you resist? This is the great challenge of our generation of teachers to deal with this issue. I'm not doing the hard work, by the way. The hard work's being done by people every day in schools. But I've got an opportunity to inform and shape it. And uh, no, I didn't hesitate. 
Well, I don't always cheer public appointments when I hear them on the radio, but I cheered yours, Kevin, and I'm sure everyone who's listened to the last half an hour will be incredibly heartened by everything that you've said. Good luck in what you've got to do, and it would be great if we can talk to you again towards the end of that nine months and hear what progress you've made. Kevin Collins, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Matthew. Good to talk to you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen. 